It's about time in a film nothing happened. What a brave choice a director made. What a, what a pioneer this guy is. Let's do nothing. Do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. Is this where I go to be a star? This is where you go to sacrifice, learn your craft, and work hard. Movies. Mm -hmm. Well, let's yeah. talk movies. Okay. Pick this up. Control sound. Roll camera. Speed. Dead. Walker. Welcome to Scene by Scene. This is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker's and film lover's perspective. My name's Joe. And my name's Justin. In this episode, we'll be discussing Hirokazu Koreeda's Afterlife. Our discussion will be spoiler heavy, and you may find this discussion more engaging if you've seen the film before listening. Joe, how are you doing today? I have my fingers crossed that now that we have made it through spooky season, maybe we can uh, course correct a little bit here. You know, we can do away with some of the hate and negativity. That being said, I didn't love this film. No, I'm just kidding. Let's actually start here because I noticed that, and, and to be upfront, you hadn't seen this before, correct? That is correct. Nor had I. So... I've actually been sitting on the Criterion Blu-ray copy of this for a while now. I actually watched it initially on the Criterion channel. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> and then I'm like, I want to watch it again. And, you know, I know that there's a lot more on the disc. So I finally opened up my Blu-ray copy. But going back to where this started, I, I noticed you watched it twice as well. And your letterbox rating changed you started at a three and a half and then you you went up yeah i'll talk about that a little bit I, I liked it the first time but there were certain elements that i don't think fully came together for me and then i watched it again one of those elements no longer bothered me so yeah it did go up a little bit for me i was just going to ask you real quick about your experience with Corieta and his films you hadn't seen this film before but you've seen some of his more recent films is that correct yeah i came into this episode and afterlife with some experience with Corieta. i think the big one is 2018's shoplifters a film that I really enjoyed, I think that it was one of those films that I had ranked as the top one or two films of that year, if I'm remembering correctly. It, it just struck me and it, it stuck with me. Tell us a little bit about your experience with Corieta. I've seen a couple of things from him. Still Walking, I Wish, and Like Father, Like Son. I have not seen any of his newer things or his first feature Mavarosi. it's been a long time since i've seen those films that i've seen and this experience is one that makes me want to revisit those as well as catch the things that i've missed over the years regardless of how i feel about this particular film it made me want to seek out his work yeah i would echo the sentiment there regarding wanting to seek out more of Corieta. and i was really glad that i actually dove into the criterion blu-ray rather than just leaning on the Criterion channel. Yeah. Just, Justin's <laughs> shaking his head like, yeah, Joe, you're, you're a moron. 
There's a fair amount of supplemental material on that Afterlife Blu-ray. One thing that I really found fascinating on there was the interview with him where he was kind of talking about a little bit of his history and the process of making Afterlife. He talks about his family history, the style and technique that he used to create this film. And, you know, you mentioned it in the David Lynch episode, Mulholland Drive, that we did, how you could just listen to Lynch talk about film. I could really just listen to Corey to talk about the making of his films. ご収蔵様です。皆さんには7日後天国へ行っていただきます。その生きだけ。Afterlife takes place at this facility. It sort of functions as this way station between life and death, between the living world and the afterlife. When people die, they arrive at this facility. They spend a week there in total, and they are given the first three days to choose a single memory that is most meaningful to them, that they will take with them to the other side. After they pick their memory, the staff recreates that memory on film. They screen the films that they create, and then that person passes on to the other side with that one memory, forgetting all other memories from their lifetime. There are some people in the film that know exactly what memory they will choose. There are some that struggle choosing, and then there are some that just, I think, refuse to choose. And the film follows that process as well as the filmmaking process that comes after it. The film also follows the staff of this facility, mainly Takashi Mochi Zuki and Shi Ori Sato Naka. They're sort of working together as a team. I think she is sort of like in training. The staff are made up of people who were also unable to choose a memory for themselves, who've passed away and were unable to choose a memory for whatever reason. Mochizuki discovers that he has a connection to one of the newly deceased, and this inspires like a transformative journey for 
him as well. I think we'll get into the details of that as we discuss the story. Do you think I missed anything important, Joe? I mean, it's kind of tough to say because I think that there's a lot that is happening. And while the story is really centralized around Takashi, Shiori, and Ichiru Watanabe, I do feel like sort of the compelling things that are going on around are these little like moments of interviews with other people that had passed. There's just this collection of various characters, each of them trying to find that memory. You know, there's a young girl who chooses the Splash Mountain ride at Disneyland after eating pancakes. This older woman who was recalling like dancing as a child to red shoes. And then some characters very focused on sex and intimacy. While all of these other individuals don't necessarily get the time or the attention that the central story does, I think they also really add to this world. And I could have spent an entire movie on the woman who had already like chosen her memory when she was like nine years old and she was kind of confounding the counselors that are in this space. This is what's interesting, and I'll get into this now since you kind of were talking about the supporting characters, some portrayed by actors and some portrayed by non-actors. This is the thing that sort of changed with the second viewing for me. I was into this film from the very beginning. I think it's really well set up. It has a very sort of high concept idea, but I think they handled that exposition really well. And just the documentary style aesthetic, I think is really interesting. And we'll get into all this stuff in more detail later. But so I was in and I was interested in these characters and I didn't need anything more than just these people talking about their memories. And they go on to showing the filming process, the process of recreating these memories. But then there's a certain point where I guess it becomes Takashi's story in a way, and that's portrayed through this connection that he has with one of the people who've, who've shown up and this guy is struggling to pick a memory. In that moment when they revealed that connection, that's the, the element that didn't work for me. I was like, why are we trying to force this thing? I, I didn't necessarily understand why it was necessary. Upon my second viewing, I did sort of just accept it for what it was, and I do think it adds maybe some new layers to the story and some more interesting sort of questions about particularly the way Shiori reacts when Takashi leaves. So not just Takashi's story, but her story too, and the dynamic between the two. Upon that second viewing, I realized that that is adding something to the film. You know, upon first viewing, I was just so happy with admittedly a very high concept idea, but the very simple execution of that idea there wasn't a need for big events and plot. It was just willing to spend time with these characters, and I liked that. And then at a certain point, I thought that kind of changes slightly. I will be honest, it initially didn't work for me quite as well either, but I was far less bothered by it. I found myself kind of appreciating it a little bit more. It's less about what the film is doing with Takashi and Ichiro, but rather what the film is doing with Shiori and Takashi. There's these great moments, and they're very nuanced. 
there are these things that Shiori is doing where it's just like these little like glances or as somebody's like talking to her or talking around this table, she's like fixated on Takashi and Takashi is basically just like in his work or he's focused on whatever is going on in his moment. I think they make all the difference for me. It is still the part of the film that I find less interesting, but I do feel like, especially the Shiori side of the story, is very interesting and compelling to me. There's that scene in which Shiori and Takashi are, I guess, in his room and they're having that conversation after he's decided that he's going to do this and she's a little upset that he's leaving her. That scene kind of does just spell out a lot of these ideas. It, it does kind of just sort of state the subtext to a certain extent, but I do think that that does kind of point out some of the interesting ideas that weren't necessarily explored just through the other interviews with the other people. He mentions he was unable to choose the first time around. He was unable to choose a memory because he was searching for like this happy memory. And then now through this journey, this process of discovery, he's learned that he was part of someone else's happiness. And that means something too. I think that's an interesting idea. And then maybe like this idea of, from Shiori's perspective, this idea of caring about somebody and then knowing that they are actively choosing a memory that you're not a part of. They're willing to give up memories of you. She specifically says like she's tired of people forgetting her. And I think that's an interesting idea that isn't necessarily explored too much either. I mean, maybe it's hinted at very subtly, and I think the film is overall pretty subtle, and that's one of the, the positives of the film. But you can maybe see it in like the guys who talk about nothing but sex through all these interviews. The two guys that they specifically talk about, they both end up choosing, I guess, correctly in a way. Um, one guy chooses a memory with his wife, the other guy chooses his daughter's wedding or whatever. But if you think about that for a moment, a guy talks about sex and sex and all these women he maybe slept with during his lifetime, and let's say he picks one of those memories, and for his wife, hypothetically, to find out that this person you spent your entire life with, that you cared about, decided to choose something that you weren't a part of, I think that's an interesting idea, and I think it certainly comes from Corey personal life. I mean, he did talk about in the interview on the Criterion disc that one of the things that maybe loosely inspired the film, or at least was on his mind when making the film, was his parents' relationship and sort of this rocky relationship that they had and, and the thought in his head that if they were tasked with picking their most treasured memory, that they would most likely choose a memory without the other person. I think that's an interesting idea that maybe is hinted at throughout, but sort of comes together in the Shiori Takashi story at the end too. So I think there's stuff there that's being added. It just, at first, it kind of felt like a plot point to me in a film that I thought was not going to go that direction. I'm glad that you called out the Criterion interview and how Coriata talks about his personal experience. Like you brought up his 
parents and how it was sort of an arranged marriage. And he specifically stated that he didn't feel like they would have picked memories that included each other. But then he talked a little bit too about his grandfather and Corita's grandfather suffered from what ultimately is believed to be Alzheimer's, but how Coriatic believed like this is what it was to get old, where you would stop recognizing people, you would stop um, even being able to recognize yourself, and like these memories like go away. I thought that was a really interesting seed that this story kind of like grew out of. If we could kind of like shift to talking about memories. You brought up the two men who would talk about like sex as as their memories, and then there was like the woman who was talking about like her affair. There's all of these like questions and discussions about the truthfulness that that is occurring. Even the the woman who talked about the affair, she eventually admits to the counselor that she had lied, and I found that really interesting, kind of juxtaposed with the older woman who wanted this like dance to kind of be recreated and how she would be talking about this memory and she wasn't lying but she would like forget something or she would kind of be filling in the gaps this is what i found so compelling about this film is there's such a fine line between being dishonest versus your memory is failing and and has faded so you're kind of patching things in in a way it's it's not an intentional lie but it is kind of it's a lack of truth as well all of this kind of coming together the memories being recreated as films or or scenes also is just this like really interesting dynamic because it almost communicates this element that that film becomes like this timeless thing almost so discussing specifically memories and, and the way we remember things, the gaps that maybe exist in our memories or the inconsistencies or the errors in the way we remember things, I think that's a really interesting element and something really interesting to explore. And, and I think it's seen in the film very subtly. I guess in a way, the filmmaking process is a way of discovering the closest version to an accurate memory as possible. You know, when that older woman who they're trying to recreate that dance and she's sort of directing the child wave the handkerchief in a certain way and she's like pausing and, and kind of like, wait, how did I hold that? Where, you know, where was it? That kind of thing. And she's struggling to remember exactly how it happened. You know, the way we talk about filmmakers discovering something on set, discovering something with the actors through collaboration, that process of recreating it through the medium of film is a way of discovering the most accurate version. As they kind of rehearse it, they realize, okay, it was actually like this, or maybe I did it like this, or let's just try it like this. Or the guy talking about whether the young guy should have his hat on, you know, whether the hat would blow off. Is it better with the hat on? Is it better with the hat off? The discovery that happens through filmmaking reimagined as something else. 
reimagined as trying to distill a memory down to its most accurate form, I think is really interesting. I have to say, part of my issue with this film, and I have a feeling you're going to disagree with me, but my biggest issue with this film is that I don't feel like the two elements really kind of come together. This element of you need to pick one memory and sort of go into the afterlife with this one memory and the process of recreating that memory on film. Part of me feels like it's a, and certainly you mentioned this element of film being sort of eternal, frozen on celluloid. And as long as that's preserved, that's a moment in time preserved forever. And I think Corieta's being someone really into film at an early age, I think he probably has a lot of memories that relate strongly to cinema. But it does sort of feel like that to me in a way. It's a filmmaker just sort of interested in the filmmaking process and wanting to just include that. And whether it really, as a story, those two elements connect, I'm not sure they really do for me personally. I like both of them separate. I don't dislike the film stuff. I love the way it's shot. I love the way it's basically documentary in a way. Obviously, I love seeing films made. I just don't know if they connect for me. I don't disagree with that viewpoint simply because there are basically two competing film ideas. For me, I'm not bothered by it because I think that Corieta has like blended things well enough that it's kind of an accepted nature for me that this is how that purgatory world operates and this is like the function and ultimately the goal that they are trying to accomplish i'm a bit more forgiving of it because i do feel like it's sort of the the payoff to what their job is or what their role in this process is now does it necessarily work in the grand scheme of it mm, i think that's debatable I'm less interested in the happenings of this like purgatory world with the counselors than I am these people who are maybe struggling to find those memories or lying, whether it be to others or to themselves. That's the piece that I also gravitate towards and what I'm finding interesting. I do think, though, that as somebody who loves and, and appreciates film, it does speak to me that okay, this memory is going to be forever preserved in celluloid. I look at something like The Sound of Music. The vast majority of people know The Sound of Music. You know, either you've seen it or, you know, you've seen scenes and clips of it. And it is this film that is widely regarded as important. But if you were to go out and ask 100 people, I would venture a guess that most people, over 80% of them, I would assume, wouldn't be able to tell you who directed it. After these souls, these individuals are gone, those canisters of film still will reside, and, and that becomes what's left rather than, I guess I would almost say rather than the memory. Certainly, I think we can have the discussion of the value of film and in just art in general and the preservation of that, the way people sort of talk about film as a snapshot or a time machine to a certain period in a certain place. We can see what New York City looked like in 1912. It's the closest thing to being there. We can see it in motion and you get a, a sort of a snapshot of what it was like to be there at that time. And there's value in that and preserving that. The Sound of Music is a good example of the art outliving the artist. And so that conversation has value. But bringing it back to afterlife, I mean, we're talking about people's private memories 
shouldn't those memories be something that exists only for them? Now, obviously, it exists for the staff in a way because they're guiding this process. It, it shouldn't be about preserving this memory to something physical that people can go back to because shouldn't it just be for that one person? It should be a private experience. And this idea of putting it on film feels like a turning it into a communal experience, which I don't think it should be. Does it work better if it's just the staff recreating the memory and the person goes and you know plays their part in the memory and then they move on? I feel like that feels like a better fit for the story. But I have to acknowledge that as a fan of film and as a fan of the filmmaking process, I obviously like find pleasure in watching those filmmaking sequences. I particularly like the pilot and they're trying to recreate the clouds and, and the process of flying through the clouds. And you see like the look on his face as they sort of get closer and closer to what kind of is in his mind. I think it's like a powerful moment. And so I enjoy it. I just don't feel like it fits this story about taking one memory with you and, and having that one memory last forever. But I, I can acknowledge that that might work better for other people. And I acknowledge it might actually work better for me in the future, too, because it, it was a film that did change on a second viewing. It might change on a third and a fourth. And I am curious your thought, though, on the filmmaking decision to not show the completed memories as part of like that screening, because that was something that Corriata talked about in the interviews that he toyed with the idea. He actually was going to show them, but ultimately his decision was that's a memory for that person. So he didn't want that to actually be in the film. Yeah, I mean, well, I wonder if that's the reason why, or if it was a, uh, these memories are supposed to be the best memory, the most meaningful memory, the thing that out of your entire lifetime, I mean, some of these people are younger, some of these people are older, but let's say it's somebody who's 70 years old. In their 70-year lifetime, they have to pick one memory, and for them to pick that memory, that, that memory must mean something pretty substantial to them to then show it is it possible that what is displayed on film doesn't sort of live up to the expectations of one grand meaningful memory so i wonder if it's that or if it's actually like this is supposed to be a private memory for that specific person because if it's supposed to be the private memory for that specific person i would question whether the whole concept is why are they screening it yeah I'm a little unclear on that, but that being said, I do think overall, if you have to look at the film just from a what is the most enjoyable thing to watch, I bet watching them recreate those moments is a better experience than watching those actual moments. Especially as a filmmaker, you get enjoyment out of that process. I mean, it really is like watching sort of behind the scenes of a movie being filmed, like an actual movie. But then there's also just full of really subtle character moments as they try to recreate these memories. They try to remember exactly how it happened. They have this unexpected pleasure from capturing that memory so clearly and it bringing back all these additional memories. I mean... The moment where they play back the audio for that guy, if it was on the, the bus, whatever public transportation he was on, and they play the audio. The train. Okay, so I'm glad that you brought this one up, and I'm sorry, I'm going to kind of jump in. And the camera's just like fixed on him and his reaction. 
this film is littered with these like perfect shots where the camera just like holds and lingers. And to me, that was one of them. I'm like the performance, the awe that's in the performance in that moment was it was excellent. Yeah. And so those moments, I think, are far better than anything you're going to see in like these quote unquote recreated memories. So from that perspective, I think it's the right decision. If you're viewing the movie just as like an experience, I think that's the best decision. But it adds another layer to my question about does it really fit the story? I don't know. What are your thoughts on that decision? It works for me in general. I liked a lot of the moments when it came to like the the recreation of the memories. Honestly, I, I liked the look of that. I liked the visuals. I liked the performances. But ultimately, like I, I feel like it is maybe the movie kind of having a little hypocrisy because the idea is we're not going to show you the memories because these memories are for these people but also you're showing us the recreation so we're already intruding on these memories well that's why i question if that's really the reason why they're not included or if it's another reason it's just another idea it's like this idea that we don't hold on them the entire time they're watching the recreations, although that would be an interesting idea. But certainly we end on that last shot of the theater full and the, the projector comes on and, and the light changes and we kind of just hold on them looking at the screen. We see their faces. You could make an argument that it's not about what is on the screen. It's not about the memories. It's about what those memories mean to those people or it's about how those memories affect those people. It's not about us seeing them. It's about us seeing their reaction to them seeing them, the, how they respond to them. I don't think that the film falls apart because of it, or I don't feel like it's it's a lesser film. The memory is being encased in celluloid for this purpose or this reason. You can accept that while maybe not necessarily liking that decision. Yeah, I, I do think it's worth acknowledging that they do explain that the process is we recreate these memories on film and then you pass to the other side with this memory that you will hold on to forever they do explain that that is the process but there's little things along the way that they feel no need to explain that i actually do appreciate because we're representing this afterlife or this gateway into the afterlife as sort of like a a physical thing a practical place and building and just a job for people that's going to invite people to say like well how does this work why is it this way it's going to make people want to have the answers and it's not telling you the answers it's not telling you this is how it's done the idea of the life on videotape so Ichiro is given the set of tapes and he's basically allowed to watch his entire life to help him select a memory there's no need to explain how these tapes exist why there's tapes you know it's just something that exists in this world and you just have to accept it and i like that you turn it into like this real thing you turn it into a business you don't explain how it works it's just an excuse to uh, justify the things that do matter in the story in this case it's like this process is just an excuse to justify people examining their memories and exploring their memories and and being forced to pick one memory that sort of defines their life or means the most to them and what memories would you forget what memories do you want to forget what memories do you want to remember and also make you question how did you live your life you know did you live your life in a way that is going to give you memories to choose from or are you living your life in a way that's going to give you 
nothing but bad memories at the end of it. And it's kind of questioning, am I living correctly in that way? So in a way, I'm, I'm happy that there wasn't more explanation. I mean, I think someone could make the argument that more explanation would solve my issue with the film, the filmed memories, because I don't understand exactly how it relates and explaining it could be a solution, but I don't necessarily think that's true. So I'm kind of just saying it like, at least they didn't go that route. I do think the film in its own way does sort of hint at how things are immediately false when trying to put them into words or trying to put them on film or even trying to find something that is perfect. And also this idea that there's a storyteller involved. Film, the camera changes things, but also there's someone controlling that camera. There's someone controlling those decisions. That is the storyteller. In this case, we have someone verbalizing one memory, but they're also a storyteller. And the storyteller is capable of making mistakes or is capable of presenting things in a light that is not maybe accurate or a light that is maybe more sympathetic to them. There's ways for the storyteller to be deceptive, I guess. The one memory that we do actually get screened or a section of it screened is Kyoko Watanabe's. And Kyoko, I think you've kind of touched on this a little bit here. Kyoko was married to Ichiro. Ichiro's the one who really couldn't pick a memory. As the story progresses, it's revealed that Kyoko was in a relationship with Takashi. When Takashi actually died due to injuries sustained in World War II, and Kyoko eventually marries Ishiro as part of an arranged marriage. But there's that scene where we see Kyoko's memory or the recreation of, and it's clearly shot from a perspective that would not be Kyoko's. Because there's there's the camera that's... It's like an over-the-shoulder from behind the bench. Yes. And looking at her. Here's a logical reasoning why we don't want to see those memories, because at that point, they're no longer your memory. You're this outsider looking in on your memory. But that's where it feels like the memories are just about filmmaking, because now we don't get the whole recreated memory of Kyoko, but the pieces we get are, you know, shots. It's constructed through coverage. We have that sort of over the shoulder, like we said, but you also do get a shot from her perspective. We see like a POV of Takashi's hands as he's like holding them together, fingers interlocked or whatever. It's constructed in pieces, you know, the tools of cinema. It feels more about filmmaking than it does about creating a subjective memory. Let's talk about something that I would say did work for the both of us. And that's like that organic nature to the interviews and how those interviews were conducted and basically came to be. You kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but when they were developing the script, Coriata kind of recounts that they asked more than 500 people to recount one memory they would choose to take with them. This is Right out of the press kit, Coriata states, I was intrigued by how often people chose upsetting experiences. The first half of the film uses actors working from scripts, actors recounting their own experiences, and real people telling true stories. Of course, as they tell real stories, 
for the camera, people inevitably fictionalize aspects of them consciously or not, whether because of pride or misunderstanding. Going back to where that quote starts, utilizing some non-actors as part of like the research process, the writing process, interviewing non-actors to kind of get their insights and perspectives. I think that actually translated really, really well in the film. And just finding those stories, finding just something naturally by having those discussions with another person and seeing it come together, I think is is really intriguing. You can tell when it's it's someone speaking about something that is from their life and, and something they're recalling from memory. It just feels more honest and real than something that you can tell is scripted. And, and this is from things we've discussed on this podcast, there's certainly an element of trying to capture that in filmmaking, whether you're doing that through improvisation, whether you're doing that through casting non-actors, collaborating with the actors to create those moments. There's lots of techniques to try to get to that. And that's all stuff that I respond to as a viewer and a filmmaker. Something else we don't really talk about or haven't talked about so far, and something, Joe, we personally don't really talk about much is this is what's great about documentary. When I say documentary, I don't mean these sort of informative documentaries. I mean just following real people and and watching them live. And maybe there's talking head interviews with them, but it's just spending time with real people. I think that is what is really powerful about documentaries like that is it strips away this artificiality and you just get to who these people truly are you get straight to sort of the character and you you can see them for who they truly are and and the fact that he's incorporated that into even just a little bit into what is essentially a narrative feature i think is a smart move and really benefits the film and it's the thing that i respond to most and i in a way it's what caused me to be more critical of the other elements because it's like I could have just used this, more of this, you know. Don't you feel, though, that that speaks to Coriata's experience as a documentary filmmaker? This was only his second narrative film. He came from a background of documentary. It would make sense to me, and I, I think it does speak to why that is maybe more successful and interesting than than the narrative side of it. Not to discredit him as a narrative filmmaker, but as a filmmaker that is kind of making that transition. Yeah, but I think he certainly knew that that was something to to lean into because the decision to hire a documentary camera operator slash cinematographer with Yamazaki is potentially a strange or untraditional decision, but knowing that that's what he wanted it helped him hire the right person and then the two of them together both of them having that experience in documentary really kind of brought these moments to life and that translates to even the more narrative elements i think the documentary kind of spills into those moments as well if we could just focus for a few moments on the takashi and ichiro dynamic here and the ultimate like reveal that we get did this reveal work for you i i actually like the first hint of it the moment where takashi i guess realizes that it is kyoko on the tape specifically in the 
the way it's revealed visually or told visually. I don't know if it's fully developed, honestly, because I feel like it's the letter that is left for Takashi that really kind of sets his decision in motion. But I don't know necessarily if I understand how that led to him being able to pick a memory and how that led to him. What's interesting about the memory Takashi picks is it's a memory after he's died. It's not a memory from his lifetime. It's a memory in which he has this realization that he was meaningful to Kyoko, that he was able to provide her happiness, and that realization is the happy memory for him. I'm not sure I understand the steps to get there. I read it a little bit differently. I I think that I agree that there is the Kyoko element, but I actually kind of viewed it as this element of how he helped Ichiro and everybody that's kind of come before him. So the decision is partially Kyoko-based, but I do think that it is kind of this culmination of everything that he has done in his 70 years within this space and how he has impacted so many lives and how, how so many people have benefited from him. I kind of interpreted the decision, you know, to to be more rooted in this acceptance that Kyoko was able to live a life whilst never forgetting him, but also paired with everything that he's accomplished in this space that he's been operating in. I don't know if it fully is earned. Don't know that we necessarily see enough evidence to maybe support my reading and interpretation of it, I think it does just kind of come down to the amount of effort you see him putting into helping others while maybe not necessarily doing a ton to help himself. I think I do view it the same way as you do. I just didn't articulate the element of, you know, sort of his work at this place and all the people he's helped. But when it comes to the question of, is it earned? And I said, I don't know if it's fully developed or I fully understand it. I think the issue is that for a film that at moments is really good at visually telling you information, this moment is sort of conveyed in one scene through dialogue. And I don't know if that is all that successful. A lot of these ideas are sort of conveyed through that conversation he has with Shiori. I mean, without that scene, would you be able to make the interpretation that you just expressed? I don't think so. I think without that scene, it does lean more into this acceptance of Kyoko and uh, and that element. I just wish maybe that was given a little bit more time and it wasn't just expressed in one scene through dialogue. It's almost like it's rushed to get to that conclusion. For a moment, that should be the biggest moment of his his life, really, and something that is 50 years in the making, it, it should be pretty impactful. And it feels like a thing that's rushed to get to or get to the end of. Who is our main character? It's probably Takashi or Shiori, or both. One of the things that I, I do like about this film is, while it's not full ensemble, it is a bit more ensemble. And you kind of touched on, yeah, you know, we're following Takashi and Shiori, for significant portions of the film, or at least we're, we're seeing a lot of scenes revolving around them. You've, you've heard me say this saying, 
I, I hate to say this, but I kind of felt like the film didn't necessarily stick the landing here. Yeah, I disagree, but go ahead. I think it overstays its welcome by just a little bit. I actually feel like the perfect ending for this film is at some point with Takashi, whether it be like that look on the bench where the camera's just fixed on him. Or the following shot where there's the empty seat in the theater where he was sitting. Those are the moments. Those are like great ending moments. I felt like everything that came after that, I sort of was, I was lukewarm on it. I've seen and I've been told everything I I need to see. And you're coming from this, from the perspective that Takashi is the main character, is the lead of the film. And he's the one who you're identifying most with. Is that correct? Again, acknowledging it's more of that ensemble piece. And, and Shiori does play a significant portion. I think my ending does gravitate towards Takashi being the main character. While I think you're going to counter with, well, if we're going with Shiori as the main character, then this continuation makes sense. Well, I, I think it's a journey for both Takashi and Shiori. And there's also the element of a cycle that repeats itself. So yeah, I mean, obviously Takashi has his journey and, and his outcome, but then also Shiori is, and that's why I viewed Shiori as someone in training, someone who's still sort of learning the process. And that when Takashi passes on, she basically takes his position and continues his work. And then also we get a new trainee. We get the guy who decided not to pick up a memory. I mean, it's not maybe as impactful as his journey, but I think it's about her embracing this process. You know, the moment where she's practicing her lines and you can tell that she's nervous, nervous to be sort of in control and, and leading this for the first time. Another thing is the direct mirroring of the opening and the ending and how we're implying this cycle of life and death and that this is a process that will continue because eventually everyone will end up in this place and it's work that will never be complete as there's turnover within the staff it just continues it just repeats i'll agree with you i i think the imagery of how the film starts against that visual at the end i i do agree i think that it does create that cyclical nature to this. I do like that. I think where I, I kind of struggle, though, with the Shiori element, though, is you see her pulling the strings a little bit. You see her being portrayed and projected in a certain way. I guess I, I kind of also question, like, how quickly this character has turned. And I guess, you know, clearly we don't know how much time has passed in between there. But from when we see her going to conduct her interview, the film implies that it basically is like the next week. But how quickly that character turns, it almost felt just somebody else entirely. I guess to kind of support this, if you think about like Shiori when she was sitting in the younger girl's interview and she talks that younger girl into, into something else and making a different decision, one could view that as Shiori trying to guide the girl to something more meaningful. 
but it could also really come across a little manipulative. So for her having demonstrated certain tendencies over the course of the film, I don't know that I completely bought Shiori at the end. I mean, the the big example is convincing the girl to choose a memory other than Disneyland. I don't view that as like manipulation. It's the one character, the one person she identifies with. She's having this conversation with someone younger because she identifies with this person and is trying to steer them away from making a mistake because she has, just like Takashi, she has gained some knowledge from her experience working there. Could there have been more to fill in that gap? For me, yes, but I don't think that I don't buy that that's the same person. And part of it is also a letting go of Takashi from her perspective, someone that she was close to. And that's something else that isn't given a lot of time. I'll close out by saying it didn't work for me either of the two times I watched it. Now, you've acknowledged that you found more upon rewatch. Maybe a third viewing is in order for me, and maybe my perspective does change. I honestly wish maybe we got more with her, and we learned a little bit more about her. But this is the thing that I keep thinking about, is the fact that these are all people who could not choose. And you saw the person who could not choose in this round of people, we saw the person who could not choose. And he was kind of arrogant. He didn't take the whole process seriously. You know, even when he was part of now the staff, he's off playing in the snow. He's not doing anything. And especially he's young and she's young. Maybe what someone going into this, the mentality they have. And then I think about the fact that Takashi was there for 50 years working. Shiori had mentioned that she was there for a year. Imagine the change and the perspective of someone who's experienced that many people and that much time versus someone who's only been there a year and has only had 30 clients or whatever you call them. She died very young and she maybe has coming in very immature, similar to the guy who refused to choose this time. I, I wish there was a little bit more to kind of sink your teeth into, but that's kind of the stuff I keep in mind when I think about her kind of coming to this place at the end. I agree with you. And while I'm very accepting of the things that the film doesn't necessarily reveal or provide exposition to, I'm totally on board with those things. All I needed to maybe connect with her a little bit more is just that discussion that we see with the one counselor who has the picture of his child. And he's talking about like his reason and his motive for for being there. You know, even if we just got one scene where Shiori was rebellious of, you know, no, I, I'm still not choosing or just some sort of little bit of motivation other than she likes Takashi. You talked about it a little bit earlier when it came to the look and the way that this film was shot. Corriere basically used two different cinematographers to kind of capture different looks of the film. I I actually really liked the differences when it came to the, the styles and the looks there. The lighting between the two is, is substantially different. We don't get a lot of the visualized memories in the final cut, but the moments we do get, it is a, a more sort of polished, more sort of 
studio filmmaking look using a lot more light, a lot of the the tools that you'd expect to see. The rest of the film, the the majority of that film utilizing a lot less light, focusing more on the natural light. I think what's essential about that, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later too, is that I think this more grounded look, this this look utilizing sort of natural light and the handheld camera, these things that feel tangible in a way because they're kind of raw, they ground this film in reality, which I think is important because we are playing in this playground of death, afterlife, this sort of high concept, fantastical idea. And so it's grounding that idea into like the real world, the, the world we understand. So I think that's important. But I mean, also, I did think that there was a bit of, for lack of a better word, I'm going to use ethereal, this ethereal quality to to that section as well, though, particularly with the people emerging through the fog, the visible light beams. It does have this sort of otherworldly look at times, even though it is sort of very grounded in, in the reality we know. I think even the snow kind of adds to that in a weird way. Like, obviously, we're all familiar with snow. Some of us more familiar than others, obviously, based on location. But, you know, we're all familiar with that. But yet, when it's in this film, it takes on another quality in a weird way. Yamazaki Yutaka was the cinematographer for the the narrative sections. Basically, like, his experience is, like, shooting documentary. And I think that's on clear display with his style and the shot selection and, and the decisions that were being made there. He and Corieta had even set out to try to use as much natural light or existing light as possible. And I, I think that that shows in those sections of the film. There's one moment in particular. There's this interview scene that's happening. The character is like recalling this memory of how he was going to commit suicide at age 20. And there is this change of light that occurs in that scene where it's almost like and and it wasn't a jump cut the lighting had just like changed from being kind of dimmer whether it be like a cloudiness and like the cloud cleared away and that scene instantly just like became a, a bit brighter and you know that's something that conventional filmmaking they discourage you know you got to be consistent and control your light there was something just like so amazingly pure i don't know how you feel about the jump cuts in this film you know when you have a one camera setup and you're essentially interviewing somebody you have these cuts where you're cutting to the relevant information and that's why when you see talking head documentaries they typically have at least two angles so you can cut around stuff. You know, this is now a couple times we've referenced After Sun on here. You had talked about the elliptical nature of the edit in that film and how there are things that maybe even happen like out of sequence and because it's based off of memory or that film is about memory, memories can be kind of thrown off and, and the order in which things happen may be incorrect. I kind of view this in a similar context. I kind of viewed the jump cuts as maybe there's something that I'm not recalling in this memory or these moments where we don't know what happened in between there. You touched on the visual of 
the people like emerging from that fog. I think that was just one of those like really great ways to kind of get the film started and using that visual language to kind of introduce you into this world with these characters that that have passed on. It's really interesting to me because you have that shot, which is just this fixed wide. And you have other moments like that where we talked about like the documentary style filmmaking, but there's these moments where you see the documentary style, but then you also see like that fixed camera. I found myself sometimes questioning the decisions, but also just being very open and, and accepting to these two styles. I do think that there's moments where, particularly the moment where everybody's entering and that's a, a lockdown wide, you could kind of view that as still documentary style, a moment in which this documentary crew is, if you really want to relate it back to a documentary, this documentary crew is in position just waiting for this thing that happens every week sort of on time. Every Monday, this group of people enters at this time and they're in position waiting and ready. They capture everybody coming in. If you really wanted to think about it, I do think that there's a lot of shots that could still fall into the documentary category, but maybe it's worth noting what is the documentary style, though. Sort of two techniques. It's the interviews in which we have essentially a character framed in a medium shot, center frame, and are looking off camera. And they basically are recounting their memories. The editing element of that as well is the fact that we never cut to the interviewer. We stay focused on the interviewee and we hear maybe occasionally some questions come from off screen, just the dialogue. And so that obviously is a very documentary technique, something you'd see in talking head segments of documentaries. And so the other technique is the handheld. And it starts early in the moments where they're entering the office on Monday. They're talking about last week's clients. They're entering the office and we get the following of the feet as they go up the steps. We cut to like the walk and talk to shot. And then when they're in the office and they're getting sort of the week's brief, you know, great job last week. You know, we have 22 coming in this week, busy week kind of thing. And the camera is essentially, it's handheld and it's essentially finding these moments within the scene. The characters aren't blocked specifically for the camera's benefit. They're just doing what they do. And the camera is searching to find them, almost like this is an event that would happen whether the camera was there or not. And then when it comes to the actual filmmaking, I mean, it basically is documentary. We have a separate crew recreating these memories. And then you have the first crew just going around handheld, finding these moments as this other crew makes this essentially this other film. So, I mean, that really just becomes straight up documentary. And I think that stuff works really well. I think, like I said, it grounds it. It gives it this real world quality. And then there's moments like you were talking about that we do see some sort of lockdown shots, some static long takes. And, and that's just a slightly different style. Also worth noting from that Criterion discussion with Corriata, the idea and element of storyboards have, have been brought up several times on this podcast, but kind of mentioned, and I, I felt like this was relevant here, where things were just like rolled on and Yutaka would find those things to shoot. And, and 
I think that it it really shows here Coriata reference having storyboarded the film, bringing the storyboards to set, but Yutaka wouldn't look at them. He would basically just be finding those things to to shoot and you know, clearly there's things that that they had to get coverage of or they were going to get coverage of. But I just found that really interesting as somebody who, who shot your film. There's these moments where things that are happening between actors aren't in the script or it's just those natural moments where, where the actors are conversing or, or talking and just rolling and, and just capturing those moments, those like real true moments versus what's scripted or, you know, forcing a scene. What I think is interesting, though, is that in Yamazaki's interview, though, he says, oh, I actually did look at the storyboards. I, I know that Corrieta will say, I didn't look at the storyboards, but I actually did look at the storyboards just to get a sense of the director's intent, the director's vision, and that he tries to understand the spirit of the storyboards. And then he just goes and, and finds what is within that sort of spirit, but finds it organically in the moment. It doesn't stick to the storyboards. It comes down to the DP knowing what the director wants, the director knowing what the DP is going to give him, and then also like just communicating that vision properly ahead of time and then tr having trust in one another. Here's an example of that working, I think. I kind of want to talk about the close-ups because I, I feel like something that Afterlife does really well is the way that it, it uses close-ups. I know that there's more than this, but I can really just picture like three or four close-ups. Again, acknowledging, yes, there's more than that in there. And several of them happen when Takashi and Shiori are in Ichiro Watanabe's room as he's reviewing like those tapes of his life, it starts with a a single on Ichiro as he's watching the tape. Then we cut to a close-up on Takashi. And you can kind of see like there's this moment, this like realization that something in these tapes is connected or communicating with him you cut to shiori who is basically kind of studying takashi at this point and then they cut to a profile shot of takashi and it was a recent episode we were discussing the use of like a profile shot and the meaning and the interpretation of there's something hidden there there's something that's not yet revealed. And I, I think just that sequence is just a, for not having really anything in the way of like meaningful dialogue, I, I thought that that was just a great sequence that is communicating a lot of emotion and just use the close-ups effectively. What that scene is ultimately about is the moment where Takashi realizes that it's Kyoko in the tape. And that element is revealed completely through visuals without dialogue. But I think you miss one piece of information is we get a close up of Kyoko in the video. Yes, we do. It's important to make clear that the video is essentially a medium long or a wide two shot of Kyoko and Ichiro in the tape. But then we get a close up of Kyoko essentially a close-up of the TV, but that close-up followed directly by the close-up of Takashi 
communicates exactly what he's looking at, exactly what he's thinking about. That's the moment where it's like this woman actually means something to him. It's subtle because it could mean maybe just, you know, we've established that he wanted to get married. He was never able to marry before his death. So it, it almost could be like this moment of just envy that he never had that that moment in his life but it's not just him watching the tape it's him zooming in on that particular person focusing on that particular person with that close-up i think that tells you visually what he's focused on what he's thinking about essentially revealing that like he knows her and then yeah you're right the close-up of shiori followed by her essentially her pov which is a, a profile of takashi that's a perfectly executed collection of close-ups and, and I'm someone who always talks about save your close-up or, or don't overuse close-ups but this is a moment where the close-ups are revealing so much information and revealing it all visually. I did want to mention the location you know essentially a one location film for the most part choosing a location that is a little worn in a little run down you know it's subtle with these clues but you know there's this idea that there's maybe not great heating or a lack of heat there's you know like faulty or easily overloaded electricity there's the exterior of the building a lack of landscaping it's sort of like overgrown and i think it's particularly worth noting because i think you can easily envision a version of this film in which they embrace either like a futuristic kind of look or they embrace like a clean sterile white environment as like the way that this world is visualized and I just don't think that would be nearly as interesting. And it sort of takes it out of the real world. The fact that, you know, this is a, a real recognizable building and we have people who are just kind of like doing their job, returning every week to kind of do the same job, it just kind of grounds it in this reality. We kind of talked about this earlier. This is in reference to the, the beginning and the end and the mirroring of the two. I think sort of just structurally, I think it works um, to sell this idea of a cycle that is sort of repeating itself and maybe we have differing opinions on whether it's from a story perspective necessary or needed it's not just about starting the film and ending the film with these similar scenes it's the fact that we basically use the same shots we start with following the feet up the steps then we have the walk and talk to shot which follows them into the office we have this warner this briefing sequence and then we have the same sort of setup at the end the same series of shots this time we just have shiori basically just replacing takashi if you want to sell this idea of this sort of never-ending work i think that really works but the main thing with the editing i want to talk about was the way this film begins the way they set up this the story and the way they handle the exposition so that moment where we enter the room with Takashi in Shiori and Shiori's by the window she's holding a book and and Takashi's at the table and they're waiting for that first woman to enter and she enters and sits down she bows and sits down into like a medium shot from that point on what I think is done well is the characters come to represent the audience we are getting exposition setting up this concept and this process which is ultimately required because it is something that is somewhat high concept. And this exposition is being delivered to the characters, but then we are learning about this through the characters. So the characters and the audience is learning about this at the same time. But what they do to keep this interesting 
is they basically give one piece of information to one character and then they cut to the next character and that person gets another piece the next character gets another piece we as an audience get the whole picture this keeps it sort of visually dynamic and also works to introduce all the characters all in this one scene it sets up this pattern and then it sort of slowly evolves into something else we start on a medium talking head setup of a character and then as we cut to another character we get a profile two shot just to introduce the fact that we are now in a different room with different characters and then we cut to that person's medium talking head setup, center framed. And then we repeat that a few times. And then at a certain point, they drop that profile two shot. And we're just cutting from one medium talking head setup to another medium talking head setup. Because they're symmetrically framed, because the environment is very similar, it does create sort of this jump cut effect, but just with different characters. And the pacing becomes quicker and quicker. And it's just an interesting way to handle exposition handle the introduction of all of our characters, and there's quite a few when we're talking about all the supporting characters and the characters who are tasked with choosing a, a memory. And then it slowly just transitions into sort of the story. It starts off as a exposition device that slowly becomes them actually talking about their memories. And the pace gets sort of quicker and quicker, and then we're sort of like already into the story before we even realize that something's happened. Rather than creating distinct scenes, we handle all this sort of all at once. This like continued conversation that's having across multiple characters and the way that that is cut together and information is revealed through that, or I should say, you know, information and characters are revealed through that, I think is something that it really does start this film off in a very interesting way and lays a significant amount of like groundwork for the rest of the film and the rest of the story. And, you know, this is something that I don't think is necessarily used frequently, especially when you have like ensemble casts like this. I feel like oftentimes you get like that scene that introduces a specific character and then we cut to another scene that introduces it. But this just brings everything together so seamlessly without like clumsiness or clunkiness of now we're focused on this character now we're cutting to this one it handles what would maybe traditionally be several scenes and it turns it into a montage essentially and so you're just being very effective with your storytelling you're just handling a lot very economically and, and very quickly and, and effectively i think you know i i think referring to it in like a montage style is very appropriate but it doesn't feel like that montage well, there was a film we talked about i thought i mean maybe it was after sun maybe it's just the idea of like using the combination of elliptical editing and maybe like sound bridges and things that these scenes kind of just like melt into each other and they create this one sort of experience in that film. It's representing like this collection of memories that's kind of formed into one thing. And in here it's like all these moments kind of just blending together to create in a way, I guess a shared experience, you know, like we're, we're getting a sense that every single character is getting the same speech and, and we as an audience are getting the same speech, but it's, it's not happening in a linear fashion. It's happening sort of all at once. In terms of the editing, I just kind of wanted to reiterate something and then also point something out. Is So I did mention this earlier. 
but this idea of the sort of quote-unquote talking head setup and there being no reverse angle, no angle of the interviewer asking questions to this person or even the interviewer reacting to the things that the the interviewee, the deceased person is saying. We establish this pattern of just focusing on the person talking, focus on the person trying to recall their memories and relaying their memories. But then there's a moment where we do cut to a shot of Shiori. It's the moment right before she has that conversation with the girl who chose Disneyland. What's interesting is we hold off showing her, we hold off showing Takashi, and then we show her at a moment, and it acts as almost like a transition from take the perspective of the people choosing memories, take their perspective, and now we're going to transition into taking the perspective of Shiori and taking the perspective of Takashi and maybe taking the perspective of the staff a little bit more because immediately after that we get the conversation you know she's walking down the hallway with the two mugs and then she has the conversation with the girl about you're my 30th you know I've been doing this for a year and a lot of young people choose Disneyland and and so we get a little bit more about her so here's an example of hold off using that shot until a moment where it has a very specific purpose. I sometimes say that with other techniques, like I say it with close-ups maybe. Hold off using your close-up until a very specific purpose, or hold off using a cutaway until it has a very specific purpose. Here's an example where just a reverse angle, like a reaction shot, hold off until that moment where it has a very specific purpose and it actually means something i think there's a ton of good stuff on this criterion blu-ray justin any like supplemental material that you want to bring up surrounding afterlife i i would recommend the blu-ray as well the supplements on there are are actually worthwhile i think all three interviews are worth a listen the three interviews being with Corieta and then an interview with each of the the two cinematographers you know you get a sense of who they are I, I always enjoy that you know a little bit of their life story but then also just the process of working on this film and the collaborative process with working with the director I think those are worthwhile it also does have a commentary which I didn't actually get to but there's a commentary with Linda Ehrlich who wrote a book on Corieta. So, you know, I think she's probably, you know, as much as I would prefer to listen to the filmmaker talk about their work, if you were going to listen to a commentary by a, a film scholar, I think she's probably the best person to to listen to. I also know that there's a, a BFI Blu-ray of Afterlife in the UK as well. I'll actually toss out as well. The Criterion website calls one a feature and the other an essay, but out on the Criterion Collection website, there are two really good reads, you know, pretty insightful. I normally don't go out looking for these, but I was able to track down the press kit for Afterlife. It's not anything earth shattering or anything like that, but I, I do think that, you know, if you're into Coriato or if you're into just like film in general, you know, there's information about the production, the director's statement. I kind of appreciate like reading through a director's statement or hearing their input on their work. Final thoughts and takeaways from your experience with Afterlife. I got so much more appreciation out of 
this film than I think I have in a lot of our recent podcast episodes. I'm not going to lie, the, the month of October, actually, like, I'm going to go all the way back to, like, Agiri, The Wrath of God was probably the last episode that I really, truly enjoyed watching the film that we were discussing. I mean, there were good things about Possession, It Comes at Night, and things I like about The Descent, but this is the first film in a while that- Whoa, 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 whoa. You totally missed Prince of Darkness. Oh, no, I didn't. Oh. I really did appreciate kind of getting back into a movie that spoke to me differently, especially from a storytelling perspective. The filmmaking was a lot more interesting, I think, than the other things that we've talked about. I actually would also kind of put it in the vein of like Terrorizers and maybe even a little bit of Bless Their Little Hearts, because there is something just kind of natural and organic to the filmmaking here. I did have a takeaway that I'm I'm really kicking myself and Justin, I, I might tag you in on this one to kind of help me out. My takeaway actually came from the Corieta interview. It's something that I know personally I've struggled with as a filmmaker. And Justin, I think you probably know the piece I'm going to reference. Corieta received a piece of advice from a producer. It was to not focus on on the large or the mass audience, but to focus on the type of film that one person would want. Justin, you probably actually have this written down or Yeah, I mean if you if you want me to, I do have it written down. Okay. Justin, can you help me out here? You shouldn't make films for some large, unseen audience. Tell the story with one specific person in mind so it gets through to that person and it will get through to lots of people. I mean, there's a reason I had it written down. There's a reason you wanted to bring it up. I think this quote means something to both of us. I do think that as I pursue my next project, I do find myself struggling with trying to please and appease too many different audiences or too many different people when it's okay to focus on smaller groups. And I know this, but I forget it, or maybe I just ignore it, but sometimes it's okay to just make one for you. And that's what I was going to say. The way you can interpret this quote is, I think, two ways. It can be, especially in today's modern filmmaking landscape, in which everything is about four-quadrant films hitting every demographic, it can mean, you know, stay true to your story and, and tell your story for one small group of people who is really going to love your film. That's one way of sort of viewing this quote. I think the other way of viewing this quote, I mean, it says, tell the story with one specific person in mind. Another way you can view this is, you know, it's okay to make a film that's for you. You know, if the film means something to you, there's a good chance there's other people out there who will connect to it as well. If you're in any creative field, this is something to maybe keep in mind. I mean, ultimately, I think if you're trying to appease everyone, the end result is something that is watered down, it, it's lacking detail, or it ultimately just appeases nobody. Um, I think that's pretty common. Briefly, my final thoughts on the film, I really enjoyed this experience. And like I said earlier, you know, even though I had some issues with the film, I still really liked the film. And I think this will be a film that I do revisit from time to time. But more importantly, it's really inspired me to explore his filmography and rewatch the things I have seen watch the many, many things that I've missed. Corieta is one of the great filmmakers working today. 
And I do think he is truly one of the the great humanist filmmakers ever, really. I mean, I just think he's so focused on people and what real people are going through. And a lot of the time focusing on the people that don't always get the focus. It's the marginalized groups that sometimes need a little bit of light shown on them as well. So I think he's a filmmaker worth discovering, worth studying. And yeah, my takeaway is the same as yours, but I also want to just highlight the filmmaking process that was used for this film and mainly the collaboration between a director and a cinematographer and how by trusting each other and giving each other freedom, the results are going to be even better than, you know, if you're trying to sort of control, specifically talking from a director perspective, if you're trying to control your DP and prevent him or her from finding something naturally, organically, in the moment. For some reason, if you're against that, I mean, you're only hurting yourself, you're only hurting the film. We've hinted at in this episode, as well as last episode, that there was a somewhat of a connection between the film that I picked for this episode and your selection for our next episode. We're following up Afterlife with 2020's Nine Days by Edson Oda. This is a film that I have seen at the time I recall liking it, actually quite a bit. I think it was one of those films that I incessantly nagged Justin to go see and watch and he never did. I'm curious about my rewatch because I think that there's a lot of similarities between these two films. Justin, I'm not expecting you to like this film. It was made after 2000. That's that's always a gamble. I want to like this film. I really hope I do like it. I think it's going to be an interesting discussion once we get there. Thank you all for listening to our discussion of Coriata's Afterlife. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with someone who might enjoy it. If you want to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on the film, or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can email us at scenebyscenepodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow us on Letterboxd, I can be found at letterboxd.com slash Justin Johnson. Joe can be found at letterboxd.com slash JR Lefebvre 83. Links will be in the description. And join us next time for our discussion of Nine Days. Look, you don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over. Your movie was over.
Christopher, that's what you said. There's nothing going on uh, in movies right now. Great movie, huh? So refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for? Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm uh, an active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? Still rolling. You know, no, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. Great work, everybody. That's a wrap.